We are continuing in our sermon series this morning on the New Testament book of Acts. It's the account of the early church in its infancy and growth. The good news of Jesus is expanding from the epicenter of Jerusalem into all Judea and Samaria, now to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus promised in chapter 1, verse 8. And before I read today's passage from Acts 10, I want to show you a few pictures just to set some context. Three pictures. Uh, The U.S.-Mexico border is about 2,000 miles long, and about a third of that distance, um, along a third of that distance, is a fence. Not always this imposing, but there's a separation where the U.S. ends and Mexico begins. That border is enforced, it's observed, it's patrolled by people and dogs and technology. Uh, Second picture. Uh, Some of us, many of us adults, remember this epic changing event 25 years ago. The Berlin Wall began to be dismantled by hand, chunk by chunk. It represented far more than a boundary on a map between West and East Berlin. Two peoples became reunited as a proud nation. Ideologies crumbled along with the concrete. And third picture... Uh, Three years ago, when I toured Israel with a handful of you, walls like this were very striking, especially as you uh, come up um, close to Christian pilgrim cities like Bethlehem and Nazareth, um, which are Palestinian-run. The Israeli government has erected walls like this to separate the peoples. And these walls represent animosity, barriers, hostility. That same kind of barrier persisted in the hearts and minds of the early Christians in the first century, especially those that came uh, from Jewish backgrounds. Despite all the Old Testament prophecies about Israel being a light to the Gentiles, despite these very striking encounters that Jesus had with a handful of Gentiles himself in his earthly ministry, and despite what's already happened here in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans coming to faith in Jesus and um, the Ethiopian coming to faith, we see divisions and ideologies persist and prejudices lasting. They're tough to shed. The Holy Spirit won't have it any other way. He's changing hearts. Let's read Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. It's a long passage, but all worth reading. Stay with me. Listen carefully. These are God's words. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angels who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, 
as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean, so when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now, we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify. And he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praying, praising God. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this drama 
that you have preserved for our benefit. Thank you for a window into how you are at work rescuing, saving, healing, calling enemies close to you and declaring them sons and daughters. Speak, O Lord, today through that same spirit for your servants are listening. Amen. First thing we need to do is take a closer look at these visions, and I'll put them under two categories, fetching and eating. Those are the two visions that we see. We've already seen a Gentile come to faith in Christ in Acts chapter 8. The Ethiopian was an absolute outsider, though, an outlier, likely a black man from Africa, definitely a Gentile, and he's described as a eunuch. He's been neutered or spayed, and he is... Um, an outlier even amongst his culture, the outsider of outsiders. But here in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is a run-of-the-mill Gentile. He's a local. He lives in Caesarea. Take a look at this map. I added arrows because I know you can't see it uh, from that distance. But the bottom arrow is Joppa, where Peter is at the end of Acts 9, and when he, when he gets the vision in Acts 10. And Caesarea is 30 miles up the coast along the Mediterranean where Cornelius lives. Cornelius is an officer over 100 soldiers, centurion. And he's well-respected by uh, the local people. In fact, he likely, as a God-fearing man, attends a local Jewish synagogue. And one day while he's praying, he has a vision. The angel tells him to send for a guy named Peter. And Peter also happens to get a vision. For Peter, it was a necessary complement to what Cornelius heard because Peter likely would not have trusted these messengers, likely would not have taken the time to travel 30 miles off the coast, and definitely, because he says this in our text, would not have entered this Gentile household as an observant Jew, observing the ceremonial um, cleanness laws. And so he gets a vision that fits together with Cornelius's vision perfectly like two puzzle pieces. And this divine appointment is scheduled to the second Because just as Peter is scratching his head trying to figure out what these visions mean, the doorbell rings downstairs. And it's the guys from Caesarea looking for a guy named Peter, staying with Simon the Tanner. You know, we saw a a similar double vision in Acts chapter 9. Saul is on the road to Damascus when Jesus appears to him. He was out to persecute Christians, throw them in jail, have some of them killed, And Jesus simply says to him, go ahead to Damascus and wait. And meanwhile, the matching vision, the puzzle piece, uh, that's the pair, is given to Ananias, a servant of the Lord up up in Damascus. And Jesus appears to him and says, go looking for a guy named Saul. And Ananias knew who it was because this guy was notorious as a, a persecutor of Christians. Find Saul and share with him the good news of salvation. Divine appointments intended by God to accomplish his rescuing, saving work amongst sinners. When I was in grad school, I took a missions class taught by Dr. Long. Dr. Long, at at face value, was what you'd expect from a Presbyterian professor. Old and gray and um, proper in language, with a suit on, a stodgy old Presbyterian, until he opened his mouth because he then began to regale us with true stories of the decades he and his family had spent on the missions field, 
in the bush of Africa amongst primitive tribes. And Dr. Longwood, those classes went by like a, the blink of an eye. Dr. Longwood tell us about how these people who um, had not any access to any scriptures, had never met a white man, had certainly never heard of a, a person or divine being named Jesus, would have a dream. And this name was foreign to their native tongue. They would have a dream that someone would arrive in their tribe and they were to assemble the people to hear about this person named Jesus, divine appointments amongst primitive tribes. In 2008, uh, Grace Reddy and Barnabas Reddy's uh, dad, who is a pastor and evangelist, came and uh, we invited him into our pulpit. Um, He told the story of his conversion from um, being a radical Hindu. He told about growing up Um, trying to worship as many of the millions of Hindu gods as he possibly could, but never having the soul satisfaction at the core of his being. And and when he learned of Christianity or Christians in his community, he set out to persecute them. He burned hundreds of Bibles. He physically assaulted Christians. um, And as he put it, he would kick them mercilessly. And his spiritual restlessness led him to um, hear about the story of a God, always interested in learning about more gods, of a God who atoned for sin by shedding the blood of his son. Didn't know where it came from, whether it was a myth or whether it had some uh, relation to an actual God. And one day found himself strangely attracted to opening a Bible that he didn't burn and reading. And he mentions Isaiah 45 in in his uh, message. I I just listened to it again this, this week. And um, the turning point was a vision. Divine being appeared to him and tenderly called him my son. When he woke up, he told his father very excitedly, Jesus Christ appeared to me. And he was then persecuted by his own people, but uh, came to faith in Jesus. And with his new identity as a child of God at his baptism, a Christian pastor said, we need to change your name. Um, and changed his name to Foot of Jesus, which is the name he goes by today, Yesu Padam, ready, because he said, you kicked Christians, and now you, are, you will be the foot of Jesus in a different way. Marvelous. Third little story. Uh, several of us went to the Gospel Coalition Conference two years ago, not just this past April, and uh, the testimony theme that year down in Orlando was how God was advancing the cause of Christ in the heart of the Middle East among uh, Muslims. And one of the testimonies, I wish I had all the details written down, was so striking because um, God was at work in two households on two different continents among people who would never possibly meet one another and in a string of circumstances coordinated a divine appointment involving a vision or a dream in which someone dreamed of someone coming from a far-off land to tell them about Jesus. God is still at work using, making these divine appointments. Why doesn't he use dreams and visions all the time? Why, why, why don't we hear about those stories here? Um, my educated guess, it's the best I can do, is that God chooses to use those means in order to break down significant barriers for the advancement of the gospel. 
like reaching into tribes in Africa that have no Christian presence, that have no biblical translation in their native tongue, that have never um, come across a church or a worship service where Jesus is preached. God breaks down barriers through these means um, in order to get the undivided attention of a man who um, was worshiping thousands of Hindu gods to say there is one real God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. God uses these unconventional means to break down barriers to penetrate a stronghold of Islam in the heart of the Middle East when traditional methods just can't work. You know, you and I, I think, would love to have vision straight from God, to wake up in the morning having had Jesus appear to us and speak clearly, and there's no question how I need to use my day today. Jesus told me. We'd love that, wouldn't we? Why doesn't God give us those kinds of visions? It's because the very presence of Jesus in a Christian speaks far more powerfully than a vision ever could. Incarnation, gospel incarnation, um, the Holy Spirit filling the life of a believer in Jesus Christ communicates this good news of Jesus so much more effectively than a vision or dream ever could because that's open to interpretation. But when you or I, if we're believers in Jesus, show up and look at someone face-to-face and use words that they can hear and tell them true stories of our lives that have been impacted by Jesus, there's no question what that means. You know, there's no symbolism. There's no variance of, uh, of um, uh, motivation or intention. Incarnation in the flesh ministry is at the heart of salvation. Because God did not choose to continue to speak from afar, from heaven, through his prophets. Alone, he chose to, in the fullness of time, to culminate all of his salvation plan, send his son. The word became flesh, incarnated, and made his dwelling among us. Jesus walked with dirt between his toes for several years, face to face. Jump ahead in the account to chapter 33, or verse 33. Cornelius has assembled his entire household. He's invited friends. Um, and he says to Peter, we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. It's a striking reality because that, that means, you know, Peter also says later on, he says, um, may I ask why you sent me? Or earlier, verse 29, may I ask why you sent me? What's striking to me when I read this is Peter didn't know. He travels 30 miles. He has a vision. God just says, go. He, he, he doesn't know. He hasn't put two and two together to figure out why he's being sent. You know, a bunch of Gentiles want me to meet with them, you know, and God, God wants me and I can't say anything. I don't know what this is all about, you know. He has no clue. May I ask why you called for me? Cornelius doesn't either. He says, we're here. Whatever God would have you tell us, we're all ears. And pause for a second, pull ourselves out of this narrative and, and, and think about this. What if a friend had invited you over and said, whatever God would have you tell me, I just feel like we're supposed to be here. What, what, do, you, what do you have to say from God? Or, or perhaps it's a complete stranger whom you get to know and they say, you know what, I sense that there's something unique about you. You're a Christian. Um, what would you have to share with me from God as a Christian? What would you say? Peter has no clue. Would you 
share something that you could find on daytime television or in uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul or something like that. You know, um, try your best. Be a good person. Be sincere. Um, love other people well. Take the time to do good in your society. Not, nothing wrong with that kind of stuff. But if that is the central message that you would say, this is what God would want you to know, it's drivel. It's nothing because it's not true at the end of the day. Good people don't go to heaven. I know that sounds striking to to some of you, but the biblical reality behind good people don't go to heaven is not that bad people go to heaven. The biblical reality is that there are no good people good enough to qualify for heaven. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who does good, not even one. Romans chapter 3. Paul repetitively says the same thing. Good people don't go to heaven because there are no good people. If that's all you have to say to someone who would say, what would God have you speak to me about? It's drivel because it's not true. It has no power to change lives. It, It might sound inspiring, It might lift someone's spirits. It might give them a a, a small sense of purpose. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do with my life. But they will find that they fall flat on their face one day. It's just not worth it because the heart hasn't changed. What you should answer with is truth, life-changing, eternity-impacting truth. And there is only one such truth, the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, thinking about Peter, not having any clue, traveling 30 miles, perhaps grumbling under his breath. I don't know what this is all about. Later on, he will write two letters to the churches in Asia. And in his first one, he will say, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And I wonder if he wrote that because in his shame, he traveled 30 miles complaining, not thinking one, uh, uh, for one minute, how am I going to present Jesus to people who desperately need to hear about him? He was just thinking about himself about his agenda that he had to put aside because God had to give him his vision, about his family that he had to leave, about, you know, um, how am I going to clean myself ceremonial after I go into this Gentile house? People, later on, he would say, in his, his greater maturity, always be ready. Always be ready to explain the reason for the hope that you have. Don't think for a minute that you need a seminary education or some advanced training. You know, I have to take that evangelism class. Otherwise, I'm no good. I, don't have, no, I have nothing to say. That's not true. This can help you. But the minimum requirement is that you do have this real hope through dependent faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have that hope, if you stand upon the rock, which is Christ, and you call yourself a Christian because you have the promise of eternity, then Peter would say, just be ready to share something of that hope. You might say, you know, I don't know much. I haven't read all the Bible what, I'm still learning about who God is and how I'm supposed to respond to him, but I can tell you this. I'm a sinner and I need a savior and his name is Jesus. That's all I got. <laughs> that is explaining the reason for the hope that you have. And if that's all you got, praise God. Endeavor to got more. Endeavor to explain with greater detail, with greater richness. And, and endeavor to add to your spiritual tool belt as you see God working in and through you. Uh, Next year, you should be able to say, I I can give you a little bit more because God has done this in my life, and I'm going to tell you the reality in the flesh, incarnation of who God is and how he 
has rescued me, and, and I know because he's a good God, he would offer you the same. In order to understand more about these visions to Cornelius and Peter, we need to look at boundaries, secondly, that involve holiness and prejudice. Peter's dream is about boundary lines being erased. What what struck me is that the details of his dream are strikingly similar to my perfect culinary dream. The raw ingredients for a Brazilian churrascaria or a Korean barbecue or my southern barbecue smoker in the backyard being dropped from heaven. All you can eat fresh meat to be roasted over the open fire. Is God good or not? Can I get a culinary amen? Um, by the way, there are no sides mentioned, but who needs vegetables? Um, Peter was repulsed, though. Peter had the opposite reaction. For, social, uh, for religious and cultural reasons. In verse 14, he says, Surely not, Lord. Those are words that should never go together, right? Like, no, God. Uh-uh. No king. Those don't belong. But, but Peter thinks he's right. Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Here's a diagnostic tool for you to go home with. You can detect self-righteousness like a Geiger counter outside of a, a nuclear reactor gone bad. Whenever you hear words like, I would never do that. It's self-righteousness. Peter's oozing with, I would never, God, you're missing something here. (laughs) Let me remind you of what you wrote in Leviticus chapter 11. I would never do that. I'm a good Jewish boy. And like good Jewish boys, he kept kosher. What does that mean? uh, It originates in the dietary laws that God had revealed to his people back in Leviticus chapter 11. And some scholars will try to say, uh, to look for the particular reasons, you know, why uh, pork or shellfish are off-limits um, to those who keep kosher. Um, sometimes the, the thinking is, well, you know, there are particular bacteria, and um, by prohibiting these foods, God was looking out for the health of his people. Possibly. We don't know. And other people look for symbolism. You know, this animal has this part on it, and uh, God, that, that's unclean because of these reasons. What, whatever theories we could come up with, some of which would be legitimate, the core reason for the dietary laws are God saying to his people this, you must be holy. And, and we've said in Acts already, from Acts, holiness does not mean you must attain to this high moral standard of, of perfection. You know, you, 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 must, um, you must be better people than anyone else. That's embedded in there. That's not um, absent, but being holy is all about being distinct, being separate. And when you hear the word separate, you you automatically say, well, separate from what? Distinct from what? And the answer is the other nations. Because the other nations, especially as Israel was entering the promised land, they were commanded to be holy, to not intermarry, to not take on the practices of the nations who were worshiping false gods when the one true God had revealed himself and the nature of worship and how they were to be most fulfilled in life. He had revealed it to his people. And he said, be holy, be different, be distinct. This religious cultural restriction is put in place to prevent spiritual syncretism. What is spiritual syncretism? We see it all over the place. You know, people who say, I'm very spiritual. I don't go to church, but, you know, well, what are you? Well, I like 
the tenets of Buddhism because it helps me to center myself. And I like the uh, plurality of Hinduism because, you know, who wants to be pigeonholed into worshiping one God? And I like the discipline of Islam to give me structure. It's a little bit of this and a little bit of that, like, you know, that crazy frittata you make with all the leftovers from the night before. And you put sriracha on top, you know. Uh, it doesn't quite work, but, it, but it's the, the blend of whatever you find to put together. God said, no, no, be holy, be separate, be distinct. That's false. I'm revealing to you what's true. And God's answer to Peter's, no, Lord, in verse 15 is this, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. You know, Peter, the good Jewish boy, needs to hear this and see this vision two more times for emphasis. It tells you something. Back in Mark chapter 7, Jesus was having yet another argument with his arch enemies, the Pharisees, the religious um, tidy whities And uh, they were complaining, to, they were complaining uh, to Jesus that his disciples hadn't washed properly. And it wasn't about hygiene. It was about religious ritual. It was they don't do the right things. And uh, after they leave, Jesus says to his disciples this, Mark chapter 7, Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. There it is. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. The Pharisees are worried about the food that goes in that makes you unclean. And Jesus says, no, it's not what goes in, it's what comes out. And it's not the bottom out that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? He's talking about this, what comes out of this. Sometimes in words, sometimes in action, sometimes in both. That's, that's how we detect clean and unclean, pure and impure, not foods. Jesus turned the page in salvation history in saying this. This vision leading to his encounter with Cornelius is necessary for the apostle Peter the Apostle Peter, the one who preached the first ever New Testament sermon, the one who is filled with the Spirit, the one who's leading the church in its infancy. It was necessary because Peter, like his peers, still needed to shed his nationalistic, tribal, insider, prejudicial attitudes about others, especially when it came to worship. It was wired within him, and he wouldn't let go of it Gentiles as equal shares in the blessings of God? No. And the Holy Spirit says yes in a striking way. Peter probably also conveniently forgot Jesus' own encounter with a Roman centurion. Matthew chapter 8, the centurion is the one who says, I'm a a man under authority. I know how this works. Jesus, I don't want to bother you. I don't want to disrupt your um, agenda. Only say the word and my servant shall be healed. Jesus marvels, and he gives a shocking reply. I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. You know what I think Peter was doing? He was moping. No one. Jesus. (laughs) Nobody with that kind of faith? You pick a Gentile as a model of spirituality? I've been walking with you for three years. What do you mean nobody? He must not 
guys, 12 guys, he must not be talking about us. Right? He's talking about them, self-righteousness. Peter conveniently forgot. And perhaps the Holy Spirit said, you know what? Of all the Gentiles I'm going to have you meet, it's going to be a center in. <laughs> because you need to be reminded that this guy that Jesus met had greater faith even than you. And a second centurion is going to drive that point home. A barrier had been removed between Jew and Gentile by Jesus himself. Peter didn't see it yet until now. That leads us lastly to the destroying of the dividing wall. And, and um, let me ask this question. What would you consider unclean in the world? Well, if you had a scrap piece of paper and you put that unclean, what would fall into that column? Perhaps more to the point, who would you consider unclean in the world? Who? Categories, names, types of people? Who would you put into that column unclean with a little bit of, you know, extra gusto in your pen? Unclean, yeah, unclean. He's going on there. Most of you would say, you know, look, I'm not a bigot. I'm not a racist. I was raised in a, you know, um, ethnic melting pot. And uh, I, I love people of all kinds, And let me try to challenge that self-righteousness a little bit by guessing uh, about an answer that all of us probably would need to put on our unclean list, a member of ISIS, someone whom you would never have over to your dinner table, never have sleep in your guest room, um, never want to arrange a play date, his kids with your kids, unsupervised, you know, unclean. I don't, I don't hang out with that type. You know, that, that type is beyond hope. I think a lot of us who would have to, with truth serum, end up scribbling down a member of ISIS, any radical extremist that would rape any woman and slit any throat simply for being a Christian or even for being the wrong kind of Muslim. Wouldn't we put people like that on our list? In the first century, it's obvious that the dividing wall persisted. Jews couldn't conceive of unclean Gentiles as being equal shares in the blessings of God. And today, uh, as we saw in one of those pictures, the literal dividing wall separates Jews and Palestinians. And we could list dozens of other prominent sets of mortal enemies in today's world, right, who will not sit down at the same table, who will not have anything to do with one another, who only want the other side to suffer, perhaps even be obliterated so the world could be a better place. Any of those examples has the potential for full resolution, absolute peace, not through any um, hope of diplomacy or compromise, not through some United Nations resolution, not through some, hey, could you meet halfway and then everything will just be fixed, but because the greatest miracle has happened, and its power still extends into today. Listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 say this, and he's specifically speaking in his context about Jew and Gentile, but we can extend this. For, and speaking of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself, in Christ, one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. 
Here is the central, all-defining, eternity-impacting truth that Peter still needed to grasp, an apostle filled with the Holy Spirit, working miracles, and certainly we need to continue to grasp today. And it's this, the dividing wall, the barrier of hostility, whether hostile or not, is not primarily between people groups or races or nations or any two people that you could pick. The dividing wall, the barrier of hostility, is primarily, first and foremost, above all else, between a holy and perfect God and everyone. A perfect holy God and all of humanity who in our sin have rebelled against the perfect heart of God. That enmity is the root of every kind of evil, however it manifests itself, whether political or religious, whether on a national scale or within a marriage relationship in a living room, whether something that has all kinds of impact on everyone else or a seed of evil in your heart that no one would ever notice for years. Peter needed to remember that his own heart was unclean, tainted, desperately in need of the cleansing blood of Jesus. And only then could he begin to grasp that unclean Gentiles are not in their own category. They're in the same category. They're no different than he is. A sinner in need of salvation. You know, the irony is that his sermon to Cornelius' family and friends last 10 verses. It's all about Jesus, all of God's purposes from creation to the present to make all things new, find their climax and fulfillment in Jesus. And you wonder if Peter began to listen to his own sermon. Here's how he ends it. I, I can almost imagine Peter saying, um, people, listen up. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him, did I just say everyone? receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Oh, I even had that passage memorized, Peter might say. Everyone. Everyone means everyone. Everyone on that unclean list. And everyone whom you don't think should be on that unclean list, who actually is on that unclean list. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sin. I wonder if Peter began to realize what a hypocrite he was as the Holy Spirit was actually bringing new life, bringing ultimate cleansing to this household of Gentile, uh, unclean Gentiles. I wonder, I wonder if Peter later had a moment when reflecting back on this, he thought, <laughs> how silly I was thinking back at his triple denial of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said the Last Supper? Before the rooster crows tonight, you will deny me three times. Peter said, never, Lord. I would never do that. Oops, <laughs> self-righteousness. And what did he do later on that night? Hey, weren't you with the Galilee? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. No, not me. it wasn't me. Guy who looks like me, but you know, uh, you, you think all Asian guys look alike. It wasn't me. You know, there's a billion of us. <laughs> uh, it wasn't me. I wonder if Peter looked back and said, wow, that was far worse hypocrisy. Far uglier uncleanness, impurity than any Gentile ever would have committed. And the blood of Jesus cleansed even that. How silly, how foolish I was to walk 30 miles complaining to myself up to Caesarea thinking God had something else when he simply wanted me to share that if 
Jesus has cleansed a guy like me. He can cleanse people like you. That's the secret. One of the secret to reconciliation, to joy, to harmony, to world peace. I don't say that sarcastically. The secret is the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the cross, Jesus put to death their hostility because it's not between you and me. It's not between the two of you sitting there looking pretty but at each other's throats when you leave here. It's not between Jew and Palestinian or whatever other people, groups, and nationalities and and, uh, nations. It is between you and a perfect God in your enmity. It is between me in my sinful rebellion against the holy God and the secret is when you and I begin to, like Peter needs to here, look at the, the spiritual mirror and say, that's ugly. That's impure. That's unclean. That scrap piece of paper. I don't need that because the one name I know deserves to be in that unclean column is me. Let's start there. And as that hostility vertically is resolved because Jesus put it to death on the cross, then that empowers you to look around at so-called enemies, at people you resent, big or little, and say, huh, he's not much different than I am. Yeah, that's the beauty of Celebrate Recovery that meets every Wednesday here at 7.30. Men and women are starting to, I heard some more stories yesterday, men and women are starting to come and they're starting to, you know, they have been at home for six weeks thinking, I need to go to Celebrate Recovery, but there's no way I can show my face. What would people think of me? Walking in, Werner Tretner giving me a bear hug, thinking to himself, I, w- I never thought I'd see him here. And then they finally come, and the culture of the gospel is such that a person like that says, it experiences the freedom. You're broken? So am I. <laughs> you, you are a filthy, unclean sinner? Me too. We don't exult in that. We go, to the, we go to the cross, and then there's no shame. You know, you screwed up, yelled at your wife? I did as well. Let's repent together. Let's not hide. That's the beauty of the gospel culture that we want to see unleashed. And Peter is showing us bravely, recorded in Scripture for all time, his self-righteous heart. Don't tisk at Peter because Peter is me and Peter is you to some extent as well. The solution is when we look here and we say, God has rescued me because I trust in Jesus. And now, God, use me as an agent of peace. Use me as a reconciler, not a troublemaker. That resurrection power might extend to the ends of the earth. That ISIS might even be saved by the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the drama of Scripture. Thank you for a long vision with all kinds of details. But at the heart of it, Like every other true story, at the heart of it is Jesus hanging on a cross, paying the ultimate price to resolve the hostility of sinners like us with you, a perfect God. Amazing grace. Let it transform us from the inside, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.